Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining us today for um, our webinar on obesity care in communities of color. My name is Nicole Varner. I serve as Chief of Staff in the Office of Congressman Mark Vesey. Some of you may recognize me from other panels that I've um, worked with NMQF on. Um, so thanks for being here today. Um, as part of my work with Congressman DC, who sits on the Energy and Commerce Committee, we work on issues that affect everyone, including um, and especially minority and underserved communities. Um, we work on issues such as voting rights, housing, gun violence prevention, health and fitness, and um, protecting and making more robust the Affordable Care Act. Um, <clears throat> with a boss who works on the Energy and Commerce Committee, um, we know that um, healthcare is super important and he serves a district that is uh, and was in 2016, had the highest rate of uninsured people in the country. Um, so a lot of these conversations that we are having today are especially important for us. To shift away from myself now, I'm pleased to introduce you to our speakers today who have a wealth of experience regarding obesity care. Dr. Eric Griggs, uh, an adjunct professor in the Department of Global Community Health and Behavioral Sciences at Tulane University School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine, and Michelle Teeter, Senior Program Manager at the Black Women's Health Imperative, uh, which is a clinical with a clinical background in mental health and as a nurse. Um, before we get started and jump into our conversation today, I have one housekeeping note for our attendees. And if you have any questions, please throw those into the Q&A box when you have a, uh, a chance, but keep the conversation going and let us know where you're joining us from. Um, so Dr. Griggs and Michelle, tell us a little bit about your journey with obesity. That is an interesting question. My journey with obesity. Wow. So uh, I will say uh, my name is Dr. Eric Griggs. I actually live in New Orleans, been there for the last 30 years. Um, originally from North Carolina, I uh, went to uh, Notre Dame by way of the Midwest and came down in Louisiana, New Orleans and got stuck. Uh, what's interesting about the journey for, with obesity is, uh, you know, it's, it's a term that has come to be, it's come to be vilified. Uh, you know, there's a, a lot of different perceptions of what's obese. Uh, part of what my journey, uh, I am assistant vice president of community health affairs at Access Health Louisiana, which means I do a lot of the public health things like public health communication. Where's he going with this? I'm on TV every day. I've been on TV for the last 10 years. And when COVID hit uh, for the last three years, I've been on every day. Uh, I get, <laughs> meaning I'm subject to the viewer's, uh, viewer's opinion. And I'm everybody's relative, meaning that people are, are fine with walking up to me and saying, oh, Dr. Griggs, oh, you look great. Oh, Dr. Griggs, you look really prosperous these days. Oh, baby, you look good, but don't lose too much because you're going to be looking like you're too small. Um, uh, we, all, we all know the thing. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's the equivalent. You know, every pregnant mom does not want to be touched on her stomach. Every fat doctor, uh, which is what they like to call 
us, which is a, a, a horrible term. Uh, every doctor that's gaining weight doesn't like to be touched on his stomach either and say, oh, baby, thank you, but you need to lose weight. So the battle with obesity has caused, you know, it, it, the, the, the struggle with obesity over the past, what, 26 years that I've been in this, uh, there's a psychological component. Um, and then there's, there's the self-image components. Uh, there's the vilification of food, and then there's a feeling of, of, of helplessness, and none of which are, 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 are not treatable, uh, and they're things that we can, we can do, but we need to make this a more objective thing than a subjective thing, and we need to stop patting people on their stomach when, without permission. Absolutely. Um, and Michelle, would you like to give us a little bit of your background and your journey with obesity? Sure, absolutely. Um, my name is Michelle Tedder, and um, uh, thank you for the opportunity to, to be part of this webinar. And um, my experience with obesity is both personal and professional. Um, I am a person living with obesity and have struggled with it since I was a kid. And um, so I do know um, very much and can relate to what Dr. Griggs is, is talking about, you know, people making um, unwelcome comments about your size, you know, people judging um, <clears throat> you about it, those kind of things um, definitely are near and dear and personal to my lived experience. Um, as a professional, I um, have become this um, obesity advocate and now subject matter expert and how do you deal with and um, advocate for and support people living with the disease of obesity. And um, it, it's actually, I feel like it's part of my call and mission at this point to help people understand that this is not a disease of your personal failure. You know, you are not defined by your BMI and that we do have various um, options, both behavioral and medication, um, as well as other things that you need in the toolbox to um, address obesity. I'm also um, a weight loss surgery patient. I had weight loss surgery back in 2017. So I just celebrated five years of keeping off 80 pounds. So I know the full spectrum of what it means to have access to those, um, treatment options, as well as not just to, um, gain control of your weight, but also to maintain the success. And I think that's another part that people don't talk about. And so as we have these conversations about why we need equitable access to all of the tools, I'm a living witness to tell you what having access to all of those tools can do for you. You know, prior to me losing the weight, I was struggling with type two diabetes um, I had um, much higher blood pressure, joint issues, all kinds of things. And I can say that after my weight loss surgery, my type two went into remission. Um, and I've been able to maintain my success because I have access to all of the tools that you need in the toolbox in order to change your life and change your lifestyle um, and to gain control of your health. Um, so first of all, Michelle, thank you for this and congratulations on your fifth year anniversary, you said? Five years. Mm -hmm. That is fantastic and it's phenomenal. And, um, you know, I, I myself lost like 50 pounds at one point in my life and have been able to keep it off for quite a while. So I know what an accomplishment that is. And I just want to make sure we give you your flowers. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. <laughs> I appreciate that. 
Of course, of course. And you know, <clears throat> the difficult part about, I think talking about obesity are a lot of the misconceptions that people have. And so Dr. Griggs, could you talk to us a little bit about these misperceptions and then um, why does, and, and give us a little bit of background on why science now is indicating that obesity is a chronic disease. So uh, first of all, I'll start with the, the, the last part first. The, 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 the numbers are catching up. The numbers are there. Uh, obesity is multifactorial. Uh, it's not just a societal thing. It's not just, uh, it's, not, it's not a personal failing. And I think that is the big myth that's out there. Now we talked about personal journeys. Um, I'll never forget, uh, I, I was lucky enough, I walked on and I played football in college and I had a lot of former athlete friends on all levels from college to professional. Um, and for whatever reason, the further you go along in the, academic, in the athletic journey, you always think that it just takes two weeks and I'll be in shape um, <laughs> until you hit med school, until you hit age 30 and 40, and then it gets more and more difficult. The average American gains one pound a year, which surprisingly, people, are you ready for this? That's only 3,500 calories. And it doesn't sound like much, but it's an extra 100 calories. If you want extra 100 calories a day, eat an extra soda, an extra cold drink, an extra bag, a little snack bag of chips, will add one pound a year, per year. It equals up to 35 pounds, 3,500 pounds. So the thing is what happens is, especially when you take the, the approach from the former athlete, um, it'll only take me two weeks. Uh, you, you're gaining all your habits from your, your family and, and life. And then all of a sudden you stop with all of the excess activity and your eating habits stay the same. Uh, how many of my friends do I know that are former professional football players, college football players, high school football players that have issues with things like sleep apnea um, because they keep the same eating habits. Um, but there's a big misconception. First of all, you can't outrun a bad diet. Mm -hmm. I don't care how much you run, I don't care how much you exercise. If you don't have access and if you do not take advantage of access to healthy foods, you will not lose weight. Exercise is great for a cardiovascular health. Weight loss is a multi- it's a multifaceted approach, changing the relationship with food, and most importantly, changing the relationship you have with your own self-image and yourself. So thinking that it's, it's, it's a failing, uh, it's, it's not a personal failing. There are a lot of things that come into play when you talk about, um, talk about obesity. And then we talk about obesity as a chronic disease. I want people to understand when we say the term chronic disease, it's the same, it's the, the health literacy of it. When we say chronic disease, we mean like hypertension. We mean like diabetes. We mean like asthma. We mean like arthritis. Any of those chronic conditions that you've heard about before, instead of taking it in the subjective and the self-judging label of I'm obese, uh, put it in the scientific category of, uh, of the other chronic diseases and all of the tools available and all those things that you have to do. Some, should you have a heart attack? Should you have heart disease? They talk about lifestyle changes and there's comprehensive, multiple comprehensive support mechanisms in order to help you be successful to be healthy. It's the same thing with obesity. But the big thing is it has to start with what we're doing now, having these conversations, these uncomfortable conversations and knowing that your, your body habitus is, is, is not a bad thing. Uh, you're in full control and you're beautiful no matter what. 
Thank you. I think everybody needs to hear that sometimes because, you know, the media makes it difficult for us to feel like our bodies are are as good as they can or are good. It, that's just difficult. So, um, and, you know, people gain weight for a multitude of reasons. Some folks have comorbidities. Um, some people have, you know, <clears throat> no education on what it is that you should be eating or doing with yourself, um, especially in our community. So going back to, I think, uh, the comorbidities, could you talk a little bit about that with us? Yeah, so let's talk about comorbidities. Uh, a lot of times, unless you're a college student or a second year med student or public health student or nursing student, you have no idea what comorbidity is. Morbidity means sickness. <laughs> Comorbidities are the things that come along with the what's being discussed. What comes with uh, obesity? What's it associated with? Those uh, supplemental things. That's that would be like your type two diabetes, um, the cardiovascular diseases. Uh, there are a number of uh, cancers that are associated with it because there's an inflammatory state associated with eating more food, overstressing the GI system and the other systems of the body with too much energy. It's all about it's 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 energy and energy energy storage. And then of course, there's also the, the, the fallout is the cost, increased cost to the healthcare system. But the good thing is, none of this is foreign to us. <laughs> we do this with diseases all the time, but it's a matter of accepting it as a disease rather than a judgment. And I think that's something that we're having to deal with on both sides of the, the healthcare line from the patients in the community to also on the healthcare provider side. We have to change our perspective on this and treat this successfully as a disease, chronic disease. Right, right. And you know, part of being able to treat it, I feel like as a chronic disease is just having access, right? Access to information, access to healthy foods, because you know, a lot of folks in our communities live in food deserts. And, you know, it's it's one of those things that unfortunately I feel like affects lower income and people of color more often than others. And and Michelle, I think you can talk to us a little bit about some of the other barriers and and including that one in accessing uh, um, obesity care. Yes. Um, yeah, there's, I, I agree with um, uh, much of uh, what Dr. Griggs just outlined for us. Um, I think that, you know, weight bias from healthcare providers, I know in my own personal experience, even though I am a nurse, I am a health professional, I, you know, all of those things, but I can tell you that in my journey, um, before I finally figured out what was going to help me to lose the amount of weight that I did, a lot of the bias that I experienced was actually from other healthcare providers. And so, you know, what I mean by that is that oftentimes, I mean, <laughs> you know, we're defined by our size as opposed to the symptoms that we're presenting with. And I think that oftentimes I've walked into, like, I, I can share a, a particular story that um, always stands out in my mind. I had um, a knee injury some years back, and this was before I had lost the weight, but I clearly had a knee injury. I was working out with a trainer, you know, go figure. <laughs> it was one of my many attempts at wanting to lose weight. And anyway, so I had a torn meniscus. And I kept saying to doctor after doctor, like, my knee is not functioning in the way that it should be. And I remember going to one of about three orthopedic doctors, and he said to me, well, 
lose 50 pounds and come back and see me in a month. And, you know, we'll figure out, <laughs> promise you. I never forgot it. Um, I was felt demoralized. I felt just like helpless, exasperated by like, what am I going to do about this situation? And so it just so happened that another uh, physician who I'd had a relationship with referred me to another orthopedic doctor who did not just see me as an overweight female, but was floored that that was my experience and said, this should have been repaired six months ago. So, you know, so I give that example of how it's really important for us as healthcare providers to really broaden the lens around how we are looking at patients and see everyone as an individual, not their size, not their BMI, because it really causes a lot of other issues that can actually be detrimental to our health when we look at things from one perspective. So um, that's one, one issue. And I think that a lot of times, because most of us who are trained, whether it's nursing school, whether it's medical school, whether it's PA school, we're not, not taught about obesity and how do you work with clients who are living with this as a disease? Because first of all, it wasn't declared as a disease until 2015. So, okay, there's that part that we're working through and trying to change that narrative and mindset. The other piece is that like your primary care physicians, most of them feel uncomfortable treating it because they're not trained in that specific area of medicine. And it does require a specific skill set in order to um, help clients to understand it's not their fault. I mean, you know, research supports the fact that um, that your internal body fat is actually regulated just like your body temperature. So if you're, you know, if you're dealing with that and you're somebody who's predisposed and living with this disease, you need healthcare providers who know that and can operate and figure out treatment plans that keep all of those things in mind. So, and we're not all created the same. And traditional diet industry does not support sustainable weight management. And that's what we're talking about is to be able to figure out what are the tools you need in your toolbox? What are the treatment plans comprehensive that are going to help you as an individual um, live, like live vibrantly with the disease of obesity? Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's all, that, all of that is so salient to us. And I think where we can dive a little bit deeper into the conversation is circling back to what I was talking about earlier, communities of color, Black and Latinos suffering from the disease at, at a higher rate than, than other folks in the American population. Um, and so as we kind of think about that, and, and we are now talking more about equity and health equity and you know how we address it, can, can you guys kind of talk to us a little bit about how comprehensive obesity care is important to achieve this health equity? Yeah, so if, if I can first, what I, I always like to do is I like to level set. Uh, it's the, the terms. Uh, when we're dealing with the community, particularly our community, uh, a lot of times we're less exposed to the, the current jargon or the, the whatever the hot acronyms are. Um, I can 
I've had countless examples of when I go out in the community and we're talking about food deserts and they're like, Doc, this ain't no food desert. They got a corner store right over here. We got a grocery store right over here. You want some chicken? Like, what, what you want? Like, I mean, you can get you a plate. I mean, understanding and fully understand. When dealing with the community, we have to acknowledge that it's a bi-directional arrow, right? You have the sender message receiver equation. And a lot of times we think because we know what the needs are of the community, that they have to listen to us and no one talks to them about what they want or what their perception is. It's a bi-directional arrow where we learn from the community as much as they learn from us. And what this speaks to is, Michelle, this is, <laughs> that doctor needed more of that type of education um, from the right people in the right place. So it never happens again. Um, once we teach them how the rules of engagement uh, with those communities, we, 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 we take the time and do our due diligence to understand what would be most effective is when we'll start seeing the term. When you use the term food desert, we on this call and most on this panel know, I mean, on the panel and most on this call know that a food desert means that there, there's a lack of nutritional food options for a particular community, though there might be a lot of food that is is, is uh, calorie rich, it's nutrient poor. Mm -hmm. The sad thing is that in these same food deserts, those things are the ones that are perceived to be most affordable. Some of the solutions that we've tried, personally have tried, and we're still working hard. I'm with, I work with the 100 Black Men of America. I work in the Health and Wellness Ambassador for the state of Louisiana, the city of New Orleans, um, in a city where I love my people. And the way that we show our love to each other is we give them more food and more <laughs> alcohol, which is not good uh, in, in the conversation we're currently having and trying to change that. Something that's been happening for three years, it's, it's, it's a labor of love, but it, it's, truly, it's truly a marathon. And understanding that once we start with deploy pulling in the community to be our troops and to teach them the words that's why we have community health workers but they don't have to have an official title just talk to people you know it's funny how you know our community spends all this money and time to send us to these schools to learn these big words and brag about how smart we smart we are but then the moment we go back and turn to them we act like we're too good to use the regular words that they taught us teach them what they mean i've never be they'll never my grandmother passed in 2014 she had a high school degree There'll never be a day in time I can get a Nobel Prize where I'll be smarter than my grandmother. It's, it's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. uh, my point is health equity starts with equitable conversations, e even amongst ourselves, when our families, leveling the playing field, talking, having those hard and difficult conversations. Mama, just because you are 250 pounds and I'm 250, it doesn't mean that that's the healthiest thing for us. Let's do something that what can we do? And that's part of the problem that goes along with obesity. And that's why it's a chronic disease, because there's, there's a feeling of, I mean, we've all lost weight. I've gained 50 pounds. I've lost 40 pounds, gained 50, lost 20, gained 30. And then at a, at a certain point, you feel helpless. So that means I need that type of support. With any other chronic disease, you could call, I need, I need a referral. I need, I need a, a therapist to help talk me through this as I change my behaviors. Can you teach me the science? Do you have something that can help with the science that's going on to help me with this, something other than, and I'm not disparaging my surgeon colleagues that fix everything with a knife, but something other than surgery, or even after surgery, do you have anything in place that can help me maintain the success? Exactly, exactly. And, you know, we, <clears throat> I mean, there's hotlines for some, some chronic issues, right? <laughs> right. Hello. 
Hey, there's a that's a great idea. I might think about that one. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Greg got a song, Hotline Bling. We can even we can name it right here. <laughs> we can name it right here, and it'll be popular. But having real conversations about a science, a real conversations, injecting the science so people can own it, like we're doing right now. We're trying. Yeah. Hotline bling. I wonder if Draco let us get away with that. I, I don't know. We should tell. We should call him up. Somebody got a connection. <laughs> <laughs> have that conversation we'll, we'll get brandon garrett to work on it if anybody <laughs> did you have anything that you wanted to add to that um this part of the discussion michelle yeah you know i i definitely i agree i agree that equitable and um i was on a webinar recently and we talked about compassionate conversations um, you know, it was directed at uh, healthcare providers being able to have compassionate conversations around the issue of obesity. But I think that us being able to have those conversations within community and helping people to, like I said, understand what this is and what it isn't. Because I, I mean, that has been a very, very important part of my own journey. And I will say that access to all of the tools because I've used them all and continue to use them. You know, surgery was something it I I was not making the type of progress that I needed to make without that. So I consider that to be the grace and the guardrail that I needed in order to help me to then institute the principles that we've been talking about in terms of lifestyle change programs. Um, medication. I still um, take medication to help to maintain my success, but that's all part of the longitudinal, you know, and chronicity for the treatment of someone living with obesity, right? So I think that I'm such an advocate about everyone having access to all of those tools is because I know what it did for me. It cut my blood pressure medicine in half, sleep apnea numbers went way down, type two went into remission. So I think that really when we talk about equity and access, I think it's really important for us to have those conversations both at the ground level, at the micro level, but also at the macro level, meaning policymakers um, and really trying to move the needle on the policies that put up barriers to people who are actually impacted the most by these um, illnesses, these chronic diseases, obesity, and the comorbidities that comes with that, right? So I think that it's important for us to be able to have those conversations on all levels, you know, and like Dr. Greg said, really breaking it down within our communities so that people understand what we mean when we say food desert. It simply means that we don't have access to food as medicine, right? And so that those those are the kinds of things and to equip people with that information so that they too can be on the ground pushing policy conversation around what it's going to take to make our communities healthier. Exactly, exactly. Um, and, and, you know, talking about our communities being healthier, um, the CDC has, has doubled the number of states uh, that they've designated as suffering from severe obesity. Um, so Dr. Griggs, as this prevalence rises, um, and we imagine it's mostly in our communities, right? Um, how important is it to reverse this tie? So it is, it's, it's, <laughs> It's imperative. Uh, we lived it uh, the last three years. Uh, we've become more 
sedentary. I don't know about y'all, but I mean, this webinar is great, but wow, like there are days I can remember sitting down at seven, eight in the morning and not getting up until six at night. Sitting has become the new smoking. Uh, though exercise is doesn't, you can't outwork a bad diet. It is an essential component to our health, our cardiovascular health, but it also helps us burn calories. It helps for our mental health, the entire, the, you, you, it, it runs a gamut. Um, the bottom line is I think that roughly 40% of the American population is what's considered obese. Uh, and we can get into the whole conversation about BMI with a BMI above 30, uh, where childhood obesity is increasing. I, you know, it's, it's one of those things where how, how long are we gonna have this cognitive dissonance that this is a chronic problem. This is a problem of science. Again, it's not something so subjective. Uh, of course, we know that if we improve the, you know, we are able to reverse this personal outcomes, that goes without saying, but it's personal outcomes with support. If we properly do this, if everyone comes up with a magic wand and all of a sudden you're able to lose 50 pounds immediately, is the damage done all over those years that you've done over those years with the, 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 the conversations I know I had some days in the mirror, has that been repaired? No, it's a fully comprehensive approach to all of this. Uh, if we come from generations of, you know, there's a, a lot of uh, generational guilt. I don't know if you all have heard this in the conversations before, but you know, the, the, you know, the great grandmother or the grandmother said, I didn't know I was doing, I, I was just loving on my baby. I didn't know I was doing something wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, this is all that we had. So what we do is you take the paradigm and you flip it on its head. And rather than say, this is something negative, this is a survival mechanism. You say you have a food that let's see what we can learn and what we can, how you can reverse it. In my own family, my grandmother, I talk about her all the time. She was diagnosed with diabetes when I was 11, hated needles. She was roughly about 230. She was five, six. Uh, she was a cafeteria worker. She had all of us to start eating off a smaller plate. Uh, she drank water with every meal. She had the discipline to stop eating at a certain time. And then we started walking on Saturdays, but we started to have a conversation, conversations about health in our family. Like my grandfather was not, now he wasn't happy about that. He wasn't eating no small plate because he wasn't no kid is what he would say. Um, but the point is that the, the, the power is in the hands of the community. If we properly give the science and offer it and make it available across all communities, because obesity is not just, and I want to be careful when I say this, I want to be, make, be very clear, even though we're focusing on the African-American and the Latin and the minority populations, obesity is not just a problem of those pop, of our populations. It, 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 it pans the globe, it crosses all demographics, and it's a conversation that needs to be handled collectively. Again, not even the higher resource communities know to use the tools, all of the tools that are available to them. Obesity, we're changing this conversation from a hopeless conversation to one of hope by calling it a chronic disease that we can deal with like we deal with everything else. Does that make sense? And it, it just like uh, Michelle said earlier, it, go, it, it works back from the community up to the policy. Thought I, was, I thought I was gonna do it without me be talking on you this time. I did make it, but <laughs> trying. Um, you know, I, I do want to cover one more question really quickly and then get over to the audience questions. We've got a few folks who have inquiries and y'all, um, just a reminder, you can put your questions in the chat box and I'd be happy to um, ask our panelists um, their thoughts. But um, we've talked about, you know, policy, 
Um, and we know that Medicare covers bariatric surgery um, and, and some behavioral inter interventions, but it doesn't cover FDA approved anti-obesity medications, um, which is, you know, I, I, I think highly effective and less invasive than a whole bariatric surgery. Um, and so what can the lawmakers be doing or, or give us some perspective on what Medicare should be doing to cover the full continuum of care for chronic obesity? So you, you want the quick answer? Right. <laughs> Catch up. <laughs> Catch up. You got the VA covering it. You got TRICARE covering it. You got the federal employee health benefit uh, covering it. Catch up because it's coming no matter what. Uh, this is, it's a, those treatments are effective without the dangers of bariatric surgery. I'm not vilifying bariatric surgery because it's a tool. It's a needed, I think it was a term, guardrail. Guardrail, it's an effective guardrail, but there are so many things. In the realms of medicine, you have internal medicine and you have surgery, right? You have a cardiologist and you have a cardiothoracic surgeon. From the medicine route, they call it the more conservative route, but it can be just as, as, as aggressive as need be without the actual cut. Um, there's ways for all of these things to work together like they do with other chronic diseases. So all, all we're asking is that these AOMs get their, their just due. Michelle? Um, so yeah, I do agree. I, I'm definitely a full spectrum girl. I feel that somebody who literally um, lives with the disease of obesity, I can tell you that I had all kinds of tricks up my sleeve, right? I had a great PCP who was able to walk me through and help me to first off understand. So, right, there was the knowledge, even though I'm a nurse, have been one for a really long time. I still had a lot of the guilt and the shame and thought it was my fault because I was doing the things. I had done the lifestyle change programs. I even started programs to for people to lose weight at my church through our health ministry because I was the health minister at the time. Everybody else lost miles of weight and I, I was still struggling. So I'm sharing that to say that I am a huge advocate that there be access to, yes, medications, access to surgery, access to lifestyle programs, because you need them all. You need them all. You know, it's like, so when you are doing all of those things, and that's the frustration when you're a person who lives with obesity, you're like, okay, well, A plus B is supposed to equal C. If I exercise more, if I change my diet, this should equal massive weight loss. For someone like myself living with the disease, that was not the case. So I'm simply saying that I think that, yes, we should have a continuum, right? It's a continuum of care, just like everything else. Like if you have a heart issue, we don't automatically jump to surgery. We absolutely don't. But I do want to level set and make sure that the audience understands that most people who end up needing to use the tool of surgery, that wasn't the first thing that they thought about. It literally took me about three or four years to be convinced that that was a tool that may be of help. And it was no regrets whatsoever. But my point is, is that like Dr. Greg says, and like I'm emphasizing, you need the whole continuum. So I think that Medicare absolutely needs to get on board, right? Because the other thing is that it doesn't make these um, 
you know, evidence-based treatments available to the communities that are most vulnerable, that, you know, have the comorbidities that come with obesity. And so they absolutely need to get on board. And so I think we have to be that voice, those advocates and equipping the people that we serve to be advocates actually also to push this needle. And that's exactly right. Um, you know, we losing weight is not an easy thing. It's not, it's not, it's counterintuitive. Like Dr. Griggs was saying, you think you eat less, you work out, you do this, you do, you, you said the same thing, Michelle, and, and people can't do it. Um, in the chat, someone has asked, although we know BMI is an inaccurate way to determine health. Many communities are familiar, and many communities are familiar with that method. What additional methods would you suggest to use when discussing weight slash health in communities with limited health literacy? This is a really good question from Juliana. Mm -hmm. Well, I think um, more accurate measures of health, as um, research supports this, is um, looking at waist circumference because we know that. Like if you carry more um, visceral fat, they call it, in your midsection, that's an indicator of you being at higher risk for things like cardiovascular issues, diabetes, um, et cetera. Comorbidities, comorbidities. <laughs> yes. Um, taking a look at high blood cholesterol, you know, making sure that you know what your numbers are, where cholesterol, your triglycerides, meaning, you know, the types of fats that are floating around in your um, blood. Also your high blood pressure. All right. That's another better measure. And um, of course, high blood sugar. You know, there's so many people who are pre-diabetic and don't even know because, you know, they haven't had a blood test or maybe nobody's screening for that when they do go to the doctor. So really getting these markers is a in better indication for health. And I'll add that we have to remember, probably many people on this webinar probably know um, that the BMI, I mean, it was developed in the 19th century by a European mathematician, right? And it was based on an entirely European population. So what the BMI does not do and was never intended to do is that it does not account for diverse populations. It does not account for body fat percentage, and it does not account for body fat distribution. Those are the measures of health. So we have to put it in its perspective, right? So BMI was developed for general populations, but we must remember that the general population did not look like us. So just say it, just want to put it out there. And, and I'm so very glad that you brought that up because I think, you know, as a young person and, and as a woman of color, we, we are shaped a little differently. <laughs> Our distribution is a little different. Um, and, but, you know, we will beat somebody like me who I know you can't see me, but somebody like me would be told that I'm overweight because of that distribution. Um, that a lot of women of color have. So I'm, I'm so glad that you were able to bring that, bring that up. Um, Dr. Griggs, did you want to hop in on the BMI discussion? Yeah, there's a lot of things. The, B, the BMI discussion, I mean, you, you're right. They don't, they didn't look like us. Again, I deal with a lot of former athletes. Uh, we have, we have larger muscles and larger muscle distribution. Uh, they're just, there's just a, a lot, but the thing is it, it as a rough guide, if that's what we have to use, that's fine. But the more practical things are like your waist circumference. Um, 
that dress you want to get into? Uh, or what I tell people, what would the, the discussion that I have in the barbershops down here is, man, what, what, how much did you weigh in high school? How many times in our community have you some heard, especially I've heard men say, oh, no, I don't want to get too small now. I'm that's, that's too small. How is that not too small if you say that you are in the best shape of your life, uh, you had no worries, uh, and, 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 and you felt, feel great? That it's changing. We, we, need to, we need to start having those conversations to change our perception of what healthy is so we can we can, we can work on that what happy is when we look in the mirror. The first thing we do is we forgive ourselves and we need to let our, we need to let our, 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 our mindset and ideologies change as more of the science catches up. We need to put it more out there that there are, these are the measures you should be looking at other than BMI, like on signs, so people can start to know their numbers. They can start to realize instead of looking at the scale of the BMI, can I wear, you know what, I'm wearing my high school letterman's jacket again. Exactly. And I feel great. Exactly. Uh, and, you know, we we brown and black people love to say, well, don't get too skinny. Don't lose your curves. <laughs> yeah. All right. Don't lose your curves like yeah. curves. And that's OK. I mean, I think there's room for self-acceptance, but we need to just look at our health markers. So, you know, if that blood pressure is not quite right, we need we need to work on that. You know, if the, the uh, triglycerides are a little high. We need to work on that. Exactly. And we I, I, I'm seeing in the chat, it said high school. Is that realistic though? After kids and such, it's re anything is realistic as a goal and realizing that it's not, you, you're, you come up with the health, you go to your healthcare provider and say, my goal is to get to my high school size. And then with doc, I've had kids and life has happened. Okay. Let's come up realistic with a realistic goal based on these biomarkers that Michelle just brought up. Let's talk about what your hemoglobin A1C is. What is your current blood pressure? Let's Talk about, are you exercising 30 minutes a day? How much can you walk? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Exactly. And that also, there's another question in the chat ask, uh, asking about the role of hormones in weight. We've talked a lot about blood pressure. We've talked a lot about triglycerides. Um, so, you know. Yeah. So if you want to talk hormones, we can talk about HMG, HMG, reductase, PFK1, we can talk about ghrelin, we can talk about leptin, we can talk about estrogen being involved, we can talk about insulin being involved, we can talk about cortisol, <laughs> insulin resistance, we can have a full biochemistry lecture. The bottom line is the hormones are definitely involved. Uh, the stress hormones are the ones that we, we're most in, in this country, in this world, at this point for the last three years, we've been living in what's called stress soup. Uh, in stress soup. The two main stress hormones that we're we are concerned about are uh, it's cortisol and epinephrine. Epinephrine raises our blood pressure. These are fight or flight hormones. They raise our blood pressure just in case we have to run or fight. And cortisol simplifies our decision-making, but it also re helps regulate and deregulate our metabolism. And chronic, chronic uh, elevation of these, of, of cortisol especially, can lead to what's called insulin resistance, which can lead to weight gain. What am I saying? Your hormones can def definitely be tied to your mental health. Um, I, my name is Eric and I'm a stress eater. Uh, I will eat in my sleep. I wake up with bags of potato chips and whole bags of food and whole plates of food beside the bed that I don't remember getting because I'm stressed <laughs> and I'm not getting out of sleep and recognizing that and recognizing those triggers and making it more challenging for me to get to the refrigerator. <laughs> 
<laughs> without hurting myself and then talking to someone so I can stop this and doing those things to 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 uh to to decrease the stress level so I won't have that stress before I go to bed so their stress is hormones are definitely involved but as you can see I'm hoping I'm painting a picture all of these things are tied together which is why it takes a multifaceted approach it's not just a, a, a fitness trainer that can help you with it uh, you can go to your doctor's office and you can get things to help. You don't do the same thing with your blood pressure. Your blood pressure is tied to hormones. You take pills. If you have to have surgery, then that's something bad's happened. Why wait and use something that's a guardrail when you can do all these things uh, leading up to it and then use these things again if you get to it? Does that make sense? I mean, support afterwards is much as important as the support um, moving forward. That's my hormone answer. How about that? That's my hormone <laughs> I think we, we probably need to come back and have another panel just on hormones and, and, and weight, weight gain. <laughs> I think, I think especially for women, especially as you start to approach menopause, there's, you know, go, a lot of impact and a lot of things going on that are out of your control and a lot. And I, and I can tell you somebody who has, you know, been there, done that. Um, it does have a significant impact, but I think what's key is equipping people with the tools and the information in order to one, give yourself the grace to know that like your body does kind of like operate in this like really high level <laughs> biological way that sometimes it's just, it's not, you are working against it. But, you know, I will say that being able to get into like uh, the Black Women's Health Imperative has a, a lifestyle change program called Change Your Life, Change Your, change your Lifestyle, Change Your Life. Um, a program that addresses those kinds of things. And it, you know, it's culturally tailored and it gives women and black women the tools necessary to deal with what, how do I deal with stress? How do I deal with when, you know, I'm going through menopause and I'm doing all the things and my weight's not coming off all of those kinds of things. It's important to have the, the knowledge and having a village and um, programs like that, that can help you as the individual know how to approach that within your own journey. So there's, there's, it, it is comprehensive, you know, dealing with obesity is comprehensive. So if you don't walk away with anything else, walk away with that. Like it is a multifaceted comprehensive um, issue. And, and to that real quick, uh, just to add to that, Michelle is, you know, you talk to, everyone's talking about the BMI, 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 go to your healthcare provider and ask about your basal metabolic rate. What is your baseline metabolism? How do you metabolize the things that, how often you eat, how much you eat? It's, it's, it's individual to everyone. That's what it's, not, it's just not a one size fits all approach. Find out, let's talk about the basal metabolic rate. Find out how your metabolism is, is affected. You know, if you, if you put yourself in a state of starvation, your body goes into starvation mode and starts saving and storing. Oh, you know what? She doesn't know what she's doing. We're going to take this and put this up for later. That's, that's good. We're going to put that there because, oh, that's what happens if you lose too much weight. Your body thinks something's wrong. Whoa, what did she do? Hold on. Look, let's just store everything in case she does this again. And let's start triggering her to go back to the potato chip aisle where Eric is getting all the potato chips <laughs> so he doesn't get sick. Real practical conversations with each other and with uh, our healthcare providers to build your team so you can win. Uh, well, listen, I love a good bag of Zaps potato chips. Ooh, won't he do it? Won't he do it? <laughs> 
I went to school in New Orleans. I developed my love there. Uh, but, um, you know, we do realize that we all things in moderation, right? I, I think we talk a lot about keeping ourselves from having things and, and, and reorienting the way that we think about eating. But, you know, I, I've always thought it's okay to have a piece of cake every now and again, just every now and again. <laughs> the, the thing is every now and again, and then it, well, the thing is we confuse, mm-hmm. Michelle, tell me if this has been your experience. We confuse the messaging, right? We want people to work out and then we tell them in order to lose weight, you have to eat less. In order to work more, you have to eat more. Eat, yes, yes, that part, <laughs> that part. I mean, so now <laughs> you're mad part. at yourself. You feel good because I just exercised on the Peloton for 30 minutes and now I'm hungry. Oh man, I can't eat. And then you eat, you don't eat enough and then you get hungry again. And the next thing you know, you're making a plate of red beans in the middle of the night in your sleep. <laughs> you feel like you do the whole thing. This is why it takes a comprehensive approach, a comprehensive approach to this to talk about the science and how it really works and that fitness trainer i don't know about y'all but you know i think i thought about trying it until i saw this dude that looked like i did in college i'm like i'm not going to him i'm 50 years old i can't do that being realistic with yourself and accepting you are am i right (laughs) you know what i'm gonna tell you what dr greggs i don't i i I'm very selective about my trainers. I've had the same one for about four years now. And he's not that dude. He's a guest that look like I'm not going to, right. I'm not going to jump off, you know, don't have me jumping on boxes because I'm too old. I'm not doing it. (laughs) Okay. You need to design a plan for the old lady in the room. Not like I'm not. I'm not doing all that. So that's, you know, that's right. We're being funny, but the, the issue is you do need people who can respect where you are and meet you where you are, right? And I also tell folks that I support and help uh, around this issue, listen, there's not bad foods and good foods. You have to choose right. foods and, and eat, enjoy your food. Because listen, I'm a foodie and I'm going to be one until I die self-proclaimed. I'm not even going to lie to you. I love a good bag of Lay's potato chips here in Pittsburgh. There's a company called Snyder's. Love those too. So every now and again, every now and again, I have some, but I know that I can't do that every day. Right. And I know that there has to be a balance. That's what the lifestyle change part is about. That's what the mental part is about is really then doing the work around how, what is your relationship with food? How do you want to interact with it that is going to support your overall health and well-being? And we all, that's where we have the control. That's where we have the ability to decide and work with professionals like trainers and nutritionists and attend lifestyle programs and all of those things. That's where we have the control is to get those tools so that we can make the right choices. But good food, bad food, uh uh-uh, no, no. I enjoy all food, anything. And at Thanksgiving, I had my sweet potato pie. Yes. I had I had all the things that I wanted to try. I just did did it in moderation. So yeah, the beans, greens, potatoes, tomatoes, the <laughs> <That's right. laughs> all of it, all of it. That's right. That's I need the recipe for these red beans that make you get up in the middle of the night and oh, I, that's what I <laughs> right. And I think Dr. Griggs, I think I've seen you in the chip aisle. I don't know, but <laughs> you name a chip aisle, it's me. Just just wave, keep it moving. Um, <laughs> Uh, 
Well, we're coming to the end of our time and I have very much enjoyed this conversation and I've learned some new things myself and I've been doing health policy for like eight years. So this is great. Um, in the few minutes that we have left, do you folks want to give your final closing thoughts? Um, uh, and I promise I'll be brief. Uh, I saw a comment in the chat. This, this is the holidays. Tomorrow's my birthday and I am Happy going to birthday. have cake. And we'll have cake and chips. Thank you very Happy much. Birthday. Yes. Um, but there, there was a thing, it is the holidays and uh, there was a, an, an ask for mindful eating strategies. Let's talk about my, mindful eating is. What it means is what my grandmother did, right? I want you to think about, I want you to enjoy the food. Food is here, we, we, we love food. I'm, we're all foodies. Mm -hmm. um, some of us like some foods more than that, like me and chips. But the point is mindful eating means taking the time to think. And at the, at the center of all this, slow down. It's the holidays. I want you to give yourself grace to enjoy your holidays. Forgive yourself if you're on that fight and what mindful eating is. The biggest strategy is you take one bite, you chew and enjoy, put your fork down, have your, uh, have your phone down and enjoy the conversation and the people you're around. Think about the taste, enjoy the taste of every bite. What happens is it slows down the amount of food that you'll eat, believe it or not. You're drinking your water, you'll find yourself eating less food and enjoying more. And the more, you, the less you eat at one time, means the more that you can eat over time and the answer lies with you. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Michelle? Um, you know, I would say I, I have learned to approach myself from a place of love and meaning that the choices that I make around food, the choices around that I make around who's in my inner circle, the choices I make around choosing to exercise are grounded in love and care for myself. And I often ask myself, you know, if, is, is this contributing, right? Is it adding to the, the best person and me living to my highest self or is it not? So if I have that conversation, you know, I make choices based on that. So, you know, on the days that I may not want to exercise, I'm like, well, but that's an act of self-love, right? Being able to take a walk and enjoy the nature and that kind of thing. So it moves it from, I got to do this because I need to lose weight. I need, no, it's like, this is another way that I'm showing love and self-compassion to myself. And so I think that, you know, if you can think about that, your, your food choices, your exercise choices, whatever choices that you're making, if you can take it from a standpoint of you're choosing to love yourself at the highest level, then I think that you eventually learn to live that way and, and have a lifestyle that's representative of you being your best self. And that you're beautiful no matter what. And if they don't like it, tell them not to look. There it is. There it is. <laughs> that's that <laughs> there it is. Well, there folks, it is. I, I know that I don't I think we got to everybody's questions, but if we missed anyone, I do apologize. We've come to the end of our time. Um, if you guys want to have this conversation again, y'all just give me a call. I'll be happy to come back. <laughs> thank you so much for your time, Dr. Griggs. Michelle, thank you for joining us. NMQF, thank you for having me and allowing me to chat with you all today. Um, and with that, I hope you guys enjoy your weekend. Happy holidays. And I hope to see you again soon. Thank you. Thank you.